Hi, and welcome to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode of this podcast, we explore high-impact topics determining the future of our nation state. Our guest today is Chaz Clevenger, the CEO of OneClick Politics. Chaz joins me to discuss how political advocacy has changed in the age of COVID and how the latest tools in political technology are helping companies and organizations get their message across at a time when one-on-one lobbying has been greatly restricted. Well, Chaz, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's really great to have you. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here, uh, Brian. Great. Well, can you tell us a little bit about one-click politics and how you got started in this particular business? Absolutely. One-click politics is a cloud-based grassroots advocacy software solution used by government relations and public affairs professionals to help them impact public policy outcomes. So for a company that might mean organizing your stakeholders or employees or even consumers on public policy campaigns uh, to help uh, impact policy outcomes. So for example, uh, companies like DraftKings uh, use our product uh, to help mobilize their consumers and employees to uh, take action to support uh, issues like mobile sports betting, which during COVID-19 uh, have become a very uh, interesting issue. Uh, nonprofits and associations use it to mobilize members, uh, donors, other types of supporters to focus on specific uh, trade or industry or professional uh, issues for their associations. Nonprofits use it to try to fight against us or fight for specific issues like cancer research funding or uh, against police brutality. Uh, and so uh, we've had the great privilege of working with a great many uh, companies and organizations in California, uh, and uh, we're very happy to be on the show today. So how did you get into this space? What, what brought you to, to grassroots advocacy software? Yeah, I, uh, well, a little bit of an accident. I am a kind of career-long uh, political uh, hack, if you will. I uh, came to D.C. uh, following uh, my graduation from UNC Chapel Hill, and uh, I was uh, uh, definitely quite the, uh, you know, the nerd. I had uh, written my uh, thesis on Machiavelli's political use of religion, and uh, I was used to the theoretical and academic side of uh, politics, and I had volunteered and worked in a number of campaigns, but uh, coming to D.C. was the real big change. I worked in the U.S. Senate and worked in the White House. Uh, like a lot of people that uh, that come to D.C. And then uh, I got bitten by the political bug and decided to stay. So I uh, worked on a lot of different uh, political campaigns uh, across the country and uh, even internationally uh, in other countries. Got some really great experience uh, working on uh, uh, everything from, you know, strategy and general consulting, the polling, opposition research uh, for uh, various candidate committees, political action committees, super PACs. Uh, independent expenditure campaigns, and then uh, moved on from that to work at a company called CQ Roll Call, which was uh, the first company to really pioneer grassroots advocacy technology. Uh, They uh, bought a company called Capital Advantage, which was the producer of CapWiz, and CapWiz was really the first tool ever that allowed people in mass, at least, uh, in aggregate form, to send communications to Capitol Hill. And so it was kind of the first time that lobbyists uh, had uh, technical solutions to be able to uh, to mobilize people uh, online. 
And so I went to work for that company, helped them with their Engage products, uh, and uh, you know, helped lead their, their sales efforts uh, for a number of years. Uh, and then I moved on from that to, to work at a firm called 720 Strategies, where I helped uh, manage their business development effort and uh, helped run campaigns for Fortune 500 companies uh, that uh, wanted to take their digital advocacy programs to the next uh, level. Uh, and then uh, that uh, political bug kept biting, and uh, I left 720 to work on uh, a political campaign uh, where I ran, uh, you know, digital in 2016. Uh, that uh, uh, campaign uh, did very well on many fronts, but uh, lost in the, uh, you know, the primary. And so I moved on from that to a uh, another company in the space uh, called Phone to Action, uh, where I again, uh, you know, helped them with their product and sales. And then uh, shortly thereafter started. Uh, uh, as the CEO of One Click Politics, and uh, our company's uh, really blossomed to focus on comprehensive digital advocacy solutions. So we work with uh, companies, nonprofits, associations to help them really be as effective as they can be in utilizing the digital side of public affairs and politics to complement whatever they're doing with direct lobbying, corporate social responsibility to to kind of provide a holistic approach to uh, their advocacy campaign efforts. So, so what was what was the hole that you saw when you were one of the early? I think you were one of the early employees of of OneClick, one of the founders. Is that right? That's right. So, so what was the hole that you saw? Software is kind of primitive um, in the early stages. It's you know, obviously it's made huge enhancements, and I, I definitely want to talk about those. But, but what what was the theory of success of OneClick at the time? Well, for me, I had the good fortune of having worked with a lot of other uh, online advocacy tools and seeing what they did well and what they, they didn't. Uh, so for me, I got to, to work a lot with CapWiz, the first tool in the space uh, that was really revolutionary. I mean, in, in terms of the, uh, the limited space of the advocacy software world, it was the, uh, uh, you know, it was the, the Henry Ford. It was the first, um, you know, in, in its space, uh, you know, but uh, you know, as it got older and, uh, you know, as it got acquired by, by CQ Roll Call, it, uh, you know, didn't get developed, it didn't get updated. And so it uh, fell out of sorts uh, and, and became a remnant of the past. Uh, and in the rebuilding of uh, that product, uh, there were just a lot of holes. Uh, speaking just strictly for myself personally, I, I encountered a lot of clients that were not happy with the rebuilding of that product, uh, uh, the Engage product. And so, uh, you know, uh, because of that kind of negative, you know, experience, um, you know, I looked elsewhere to look at what other tools were in the space. And so when I was at uh, 720 Strategies, a large agency here in D.C., I uh, looked at many different advocacy software platforms that I had uh, competed against when I was at CQ to try to find what was good out there. And, you know, I liked some of what I saw in some of the other tools that were out there and at the time. A company called uh, Phone to Action was on this, kept coming onto the space that was was very innovative. And as I mentioned, I worked there very briefly and liked what they were doing a lot more than CQ, at least from a technical spec perspective. Uh, however, what they were lacking is really the political know-how behind the product, um, because what I encountered both at CQ and at Phone to Action was CQ was a media company, uh, really primarily a journalistic uh, company that uh, owned various. Uh, properties, um, you know, such as uh, you know, the CQ Weekly Magazine, uh, which is no longer a publication, I believe, and then, uh, you know, Roll Call Newspaper, 
and ultimately CQ is Bob the Economist Group. So these are media companies uh, trying to run an advocacy software business. And, uh, and so a lack of understanding about what lobbyists really needed was, was there with CQ. And then kind of same thing with Phone to Action. Uh, that was run by a, a very intelligent uh, gentleman with a strong Silicon Valley tech background, but again, not the political know-how, the political background to understand, you know, what is a government relations professional looking for. Uh, having, you know, been a lobbyist, uh, having been a political operative, uh, having, uh, you know, worked in that sphere um, in my entire career, touching on many different things, um, you know, I didn't consider myself to, to necessarily be the uh, the most intelligent person in the room, but I knew a lot, and I, I knew more than uh, my competitors did. And so I, I saw an opportunity to create a product that was driven from the ground up by what policy professionals needed. And so I tried to surround myself by those people. Uh, one of our VPs, uh, his name's Chris, uh, he ran grassroots at uh, the National Association of Manufacturers and at uh, several other large uh, organizations before coming to One Click Politics. And and uh, you know he ran gubernatorial campaigns. He was the executive director of a um, one of the two major state parties out in New Mexico about ten years ago. And so um, his background is very similar to mine: political party operative, uh, ran large grassroots campaigns for major trade groups. And uh, and so I've tried to create a team of people like that that really can understand what it is that our clients need and build our product around that. I mean, I think this is like a great example of what can sometimes be a, a cultural and, and business gulf between DC and Silicon Valley. I'm in Silicon Valley, you're in DC, and um, a lot of the tech innovation comes from where I'm at, but when it comes to actual political tools and implementing that, we have very little uh, depth and experience of people out here who've, who've got that political background. There's more and more people migrating out all the time. Um, but it's a it's a it's an interesting topic to me because it sort of manifests itself and not not just in the way we adopt products, but in some of the the political and cultural fights we have on, on really serious issues. Where Silicon Valley can just be a little out of um, a little out of step with the way Washington works, and when we have uh, sort of uh, conflicts on the regulatory side, whether it be Uber, Lyft, or all the privacy stuff that's been going on in Silicon Valley, it can be a real clash of cultures when um, Silicon Valley CEOs have to run into the reality of DC. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very interesting topic, you know, Brian, one that's a very passionate issue for me. I, I feel like if I ever uh, did move away from DC, I would definitely move out there to, to California, to, to the Valley or to, uh, to LA because California is its own political ecosystem. And uh, you know, I do think while in the past, there certainly has been some disconnect between the Valley and uh, the Beltway. Uh, it's becoming, you know, less and less. I'm seeing more, uh, you know, tech companies really be the, the ones that are, are looking for the most innovative, you know, products. So it's, it's not actually the big blue chip companies, uh, you know, that have been around for the last hundred years that are focused on, uh, on innovation. It's actually the, the newer companies. It's the DoorDashes and Earnings and Weed Maps. Uh, and Ubers of the world uh, that uh, are there in, in your neck of the woods that are, are looking for the best tools and the best ways to engage and to stay on top of the latest trends. And, you know, these companies are not bogged down by the bureaucracy and, you know, by the that's the way we've done it for the last 20 years mentality that uh, you see sometimes that uh, unfortunately, like, you know, plagues 
uh, organizations that may have been around for a while. So uh, the, the synergy that I'm seeing between the Valley and DC is, uh, is ever growing. And uh, ultimately uh, those companies want to be effective because if you are, uh, you know, a rapidly growing company like a, a DraftKings, uh, then you have to, you know, make sure that you're winning your legislative and regulatory battles because it impacts revenue. You know, every state, you know, that a company like DraftKings can't operate in uh, is a state where they're losing out on tens, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue uh, annually. Uh, and then also the states are missing out on that revenue that's generated through, through taxes. And that's the case for many, uh, you know, young companies I'm seeing in the Valley is that they're trying to disrupt uh, industries that have existed for, for a long time. And that disruption, you know, usually has a legislative or regulatory component, you know, to it that uh, they have to overcome. And that's where one-click politics is able to insert ourselves in being able to provide a much-needed solution uh, for mobilization when it comes to, uh, to making those legislative and regulatory fights a little bit easier. And particularly in this COVID-19 era that we're living in, things have to be done digitally. Uh, it's, a, it's a really great time to, to be doing the type of work I am. Yeah, well, that's a great segue to my next question is, I, I do want to get your take on how you've seen advocacy change during COVID. Uh, it's a topic I'm fascinated by. You see a lot in the press about how COVID has changed the media industry, has changed shopping, transportation, and any number of it. But what I keep telling uh, folks in my sphere is, COVID's actually radically changing advocacy itself. And, it, and, and I'm, you're at the forefront of that. I'd love to hear your observations on what you're seeing. Well, it really is. I mean, direct lobbying, you know, for, for decades has been an affair of, you know, a lobbyist leveraging, you know, their Rolodex and their connections to go and glad hand in Sacramento uh, or in DC or Albany or Austin, take your pick of state capitals and taking those relationships that they made during their time as a former legislator or staffer uh, on the Hill uh, or, you know, in politics or in law or whatever uh, connections they made prior to, uh, to becoming a registered lobbyist and using, you know, the, that uh, in-person very much in-person connections uh, to uh, to help move legislation because for a powerful lobbyist in Sacramento or in DC, uh, their ability to be able to get things done for their clients and to command high monthly retainers is based on who will pick up the phone, you know, who will listen to them. And, uh, you know, let's say, let's, you know, give him a hypothetical name. Let's say, you know, Bob has a firm in Sacramento and, you know, Bob has had a contract with XYZ company for 15 years. And that contract has been based on the fact that, you know, Bob, you know, knows the, uh, you know, the house uh, majority leader, Bob knows the speaker, uh, and, you know, Bob can go in and get meetings with whoever he needs to, to help move legislation, you know, forward. Well, well now XYZ company is really starting to question you know, the return on investment that they're getting from Bob, because instead of Bob saying, oh, yeah, well, I, uh, I went out uh, for coffee or I went over to the Rayburn building or the Russell building or I, I drove up to Sacramento and, and met with the speaker or I met with the speaker's chief of staff or I met with this person or that person. Bob now has to say, like, well, I, I was on Zoom for 10 minutes with the, the chief of staff or, 
you know, I, uh, I sent the speaker a text and an XYZ company is saying, well, Bob, is, is that, I'm not really sure that's worth $15,000 a month to us. And, you know, and so they, they still value Bob and Bob's relationships, but, you know, they are not willing to spend as much money, you know, on that because, you know, it's, it's not the same. Uh, Bob is not able to have that same level of impact where he can move around, you know, put on his suit and his cufflinks and, and go around and, uh, you know, do those in-person meetings the way that his entire career he's been able to. So on the one hand, it's definitely been, uh, I would say, very, um, very uh, interesting for the direct lobbying uh, industry and in that it's uh, been kind of a tectonic shift that uh, it hasn't experienced before in terms of direct lobbyists having to really validate and prove themselves in terms of their impact because they're not able to do the things they normally do. But it has been kind of a windfall for uh, folks like me on the digital side um, because that same XYZ company, I'm able to go to and say, hey, you can't get as much done through Bob. Uh, you need to take a look at what you can do digitally. And, you know, granted, uh, you know, you are always going to need Bob and you're always going to need, uh, you know, a registered lobbyist uh, to be able to, to advocate for you. And so someone like me doesn't ever, at least if you're smart, advocate for the dissolution of direct lobbying because it will always be, in you know, my opinion, the, the critical uh, most important element of being able to impact public policy. But what firms like mine are doing is that, you know, we're reaching out to, you know, to Bob rather than just reaching out to XYZ company. It's a conversation not of, you know, hey, XYZ company, get rid of Bob and go fully digital. It's more calling Bob and saying, hey, Bob, like, uh, uh, you know, I know that, you know, you did it this way for 20 years, but I really think, uh, you know, be beneficial to you or partner with companies like mine that are able to make more of a digital impact because we're in an environment where what we do just happens to provide a better avenue for uh, helping organizations meet their goals. And so a lot of times I'm asking, you know, people like Bob to, you know, partner with me to go have those conversations, um, you know, with XYZ company um, because Bob knows he's not going to get that big retainer that he used to get. And, you know, in order to be proactive and keep himself from uh, uh, going extinct, uh, you know, he's agreeing to going in, uh, you know, with me uh, in, in kind of a, a partner fashion to talk to organizations about, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, he, he'll, he'll be willing to do the same deal he did with it before, but this time they're also going to get this incredible suite of technology tools within that fee that they were paying him before, you know, so they're getting more value for the same amount of money. And that's uh, causing organizations to, um, you know, to be more interested in continuing those relationships because, uh, you know, now Bob is able to add more value and able to, you know, bring, uh, you know, more to the table to, to help show like, hey, it's not just me doing the Zoom calls and texts. I'm also helping to drive hundreds of messages or thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of messages to Sacramento or D.C., you know, through the, the help of my my digital firm and their digital advocacy technology. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. I mean, to your point about the reduced one-on-one -on -one time, we had Albert Tarico on the show a few weeks ago. He's a former majority leader of the assembly, and, and he's a lobbyist now. And he said, you know, like even when we can get the calls, and you know, maybe an occasional text message or something, he's like, one of the things that it has fundamentally changed, and people can sometimes forget is just the ability to pop into members' offices when legislation is moving without the scheduled form, formal call. 
that's so important to lobbyists because things are moving so fast, particularly when you get to the close to the end of session and you need to know where the votes are. Is this hearing getting scheduled? Who's up, who's down? So much of that currency comes from just like literally being in the halls. It, it's where the word lobbying actually comes from, the idea of like standing Absolutely. around in lobbies and, and, and talking to people. And, and the, the formal calls, you know, may take a week or two or more to, to get scheduled. And so that, that real-time information has been so much more reduced. And I think it's part of why we had uh, a lot of surprises towards the end of the legislative session in California recently, where even very pe people who are very deeply connected in the Capitol were blindsided as to where bills were, where, where bills weren't what was moving and, and what wasn't. And, um, and it led to a lot of drama at the end of session. So I wanna pick up on, on another part of one of the implications of what you just said is, as your clients are engaging constituents more, what's, what do you notice in terms of the, the engagement of politicians to those communications? Uh, there, there was a great quote from, from one of our state legislators who he was making the point that in this environment in the COVID world, it's more important than ever to stay connected to your constituents because you're probably not gonna be able to deliver on your traditional legislative agenda. Whatever you got elected for and your, was your main policy priority, it may well be out the window with COVID now. And so there's this great quote where he said, in the COVID world, you stay hella connected to your constituents and, and your tools, make that even more possible because you're bringing those constituents into the debate. So I, I wonder what you're seeing in terms of the engagement of the, the politicians themselves. Yeah, that's an excellent question, Brian. And, uh, you know, one that's critically important to me. I think one of the things that allowed me to, to be successful with building one click politics is, uh, you know, I had some time in the Hill. I, I saw what it was like to receive uh, constituent communications, you know, coming, you know, into to a U.S. Senate office and, uh, you know, got to see how the sausage was made before I, I jumped over into, you know, the private sector um, doing political campaigns and ultimately building a advocacy software company. And, you know, so from the viewpoint of the, the staffers, you know, we're, we're talking about people that are underpaid and overworked, you know, who are trying to do their best, uh, you know, to, to help screen what in some cases are thousands and tens of thousands of communications coming in a day. And so most offices use what are broadly referred to as aggregating software systems nowadays. On Capitol Hill in DC, some of those popular ones are Fireside 21, IQ, iConstituent, and new regulatory programs like Communicating with Congress, uh, CWC for short, have popped up in recent years to, to help regulate the way some of those communications are sent. So, so my firm, for instance, uh, has to, to maintain compliance with the CWC in order to ensure that the communications that are sent from our product um, by constituents on behalf of a particular special interest group who uses our software uh, are able to be compliant and ultimately be delivered uh, to an office so that they can be viewed by a legislative correspondent or whoever the staff person is responsible for viewing those communications and then push that on up to the legislative director, chief of staff, ultimately, and hopefully to, to the member. Uh, in terms of the channels, I mean, email is one of the longest standing uh, forms of online communication and is certainly still the most widely used 
and making sure that email stays effective is one of my company's big focuses um, because you know for elected officials there is a, a lot of I would just say weariness of what are referred to as form messages and you know and, and what I've seen in talking with staffers and members myself is that you know if a, if a big group you know sends them you know a ton of messages so let's say a Planned Parenthood, a National Rifle Association, uh, you know, big organizations that everybody knows and, you know, some of us love, some of us hate, uh, you know, they send a bunch of messages to the Hill and staffers and members are like, I get it, okay, you know, you're Planned Parenthood, you're the NRA, you can send me, you know, 100,000 form messages, like, you know, in a day because, you know, you've got a lot of supporters. And so, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, it can, it can be more about quality than quantity. Uh, other times, quantity is important. Uh, other times, it's just really important to show that, you know, you are an important organization needs to be taken seriously. If you're in parenthood of the NRA, it's more about quality because legislators already know who you are. They know that, you know, you, uh, uh, you know, are a, a powerful group, you know, but if you're a, a small, uh, you know, association or a small, like, a company that is trying to prove you know, that it has an important presence, uh, you know, on the, in Sacramento or on the Hill, then it's really about the quality of your interactions. And it's about establishing, you know, a, uh, a good uh, base of advocates and, you know, designating them, you know, between key contacts, those advocates that have personal, professional, and political relationships with elected officials. And then those, uh, you know, just more generic grassroots advocates that are just, you know, good people who want to send a uh, an email to their elected officials. But in terms of other channels and ways that we've seen innovation occur, I mean, our platform, for instance, uh, is uh, the only one that allows for people to send video messages uh, that are web form compliant to elected officials. So uh, someone can, from an iPhone, Android, desktop, laptop, or tablet, record a video uh, that can be uh, you know, sent directly to elected official. And, uh, you know, we have examples of where uh, staffers uh, have, responded directly to those video messages thanking people for sending them. And the general sentiment that I uh, have gotten from staffers when talking to them about new and interesting tools like video is, uh, you know, twofold. Like, A, you know, they think that it's uh, uh, much more authentic because they feel that people are able to speak in their own voice. Because staffers are smart. They know that uh, emails and uh, even social posts can be tailored and written, you know, by uh, mastermind wordsmiths, uh, you know, who uh, um, consult or work in-house uh, for major trade groups and companies. And so the, the videos are, are widely viewed as being a very authentic way to hear from constituents in a very personal way. Um, because in an era where we're all craving like human connection, because as you said, Brian, I mean, being able to be right there in Sacramento or being able to be right there like in DC, like in the, you know, the Russell building, and, you know, just popping in and having that human to human interaction, it's a lot harder as a legislator to say no, you know, to a lobbyist that you've known for, for 20 years, uh, you know, particularly if he's got all of his facts straight and has a good argument than it is to ignore a text. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I'm a legislator, you know, it's, I'm ignoring a text a lot easier than I am like somebody I know popping in my office, you know, pressuring me to, uh, to consider their point of view. And, you know, so in this new world that we're all trying to, to live in, uh, you know, legislators are in a situation where they need to be able to look at what constituent sentiment is. 
uh, and in order to, to properly represent their constituents, you know, being able to know like what they think and feel, the, often the best way to get that information is you know from the communications that are sent to them directly. And legislators are looking for maximum authenticity and organicness in those communications from my conversations with them. Like they 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 appreciate the form messages and they know that uh, you know that uh, you know there's a lot of people that. Uh, are just clicking send on whatever a large organization might provide to them. But whenever somebody takes the time to write their own message and talk about or record their own video and talk about this is why this issue, you know, matters, you know, to me personally, like in California, this is why like, uh, you know, cannabis retail licensure issues matter to me, or this is why the fur ban matters to me, or this is why, uh, you know, police brutality matters to me. These videos are, are critical, and people being able to speak in their own voice uh, is something we've seen achieve a lot of impact. And uh, it was the principal reason why uh, my firm was very blessed and fortunate to win the best advocacy technology platform this year at the Campaigns and Election Conference was because of the pioneering work that we were able to do with video specifically. And, uh, and because of COVID, it's become... 10 times more important than we ever thought it would be. Yeah, I think the video messaging tool is a really interesting way of, of getting at that personal contact. I'd certainly encourage everybody to, to get a demo of One Cook Politics to see this. I, I, to me, it's, it's like lobbying at scale and it's bringing hundreds of personal messengers um, key constituents into the office at a time where you can't do lobby days anymore. You can't bring people to the Hill. You can't bring people to Sacramento. And, you know, in fact, because of the video messaging, you can wind up engaging a much broader audience than who would be available to actually, you know, take, take a day off and, and drive up to Sacramento on it. So I think it's a really interesting tool, particularly in the COVID world. Um, you know, Chaz, we only have a few more minutes. There's so much I'd love to ask you about, but, but, but why don't we wrap with this? You've been a pioneer in online digital advocacy for a while now. Things are changing rapidly. You've, you've seen a lot. Where do you see this world headed? I mean, what do you, what do you think we're going to be talking about a year from now or, or five years from now? And, and, and how, how do you see advocacy changing because of all these digital tools going forward? Sure. Well, one thing I think that has really sunk in for me and many people that I know, both uh, in my profession and outside of my profession, is that COVID has changed the world and has likely changed the world for good. Uh, on the optimistic side, uh, in a year from now, I I'm hoping uh, that, uh, you know, that what we see is a, a return to uh, some of the more traditional lobbying activities and, uh, uh, you know, to uh, people being able to do fly-ins and, uh, you know, more person-to-person, -person, you know, meetings because, uh, you know, even though, you know, COVID may have been good, you know, for my industry, for the world at large and for uh, lobbying and for the general interest of humanity, uh, you know, being able to return to the in-person reactions is something I, I really hope to see. However, how I think the world has changed and how uh, lobbying and, uh, you know, how government relations professionals are going to be performing their job a, a year from now, I think it's going to be a world where people are looking and saying, okay, well, you know, we can, we can do in-person events, but they have to be smaller. And, you know, people are still going to have to wear their masks or maybe five years from now, the masks are gone. But, uh, you know, wh whatever that looks like, uh, you know, whether, you know, we solve this problem through a vaccination or through some other means, 
Uh, I don't pretend to be an expert on how that actually plays out. Um, but what I do believe is regardless of how the world adjusts uh, to uh, a post-COVID era, that there's going to be a large workforce that remains remote. Um, because no matter what a CEO or a board of directors or company stance is about in-office working, uh, I believe that there was already a trend even before COVID to more remote work um, because millennials uh, just in, in general value flexibility and, you know, value remote work more than, uh, you know, the boomer generation you know, did. And there was already that trend going in that way. And COVID has forced, you know, even organizations as conservative as the U.S. government, you know, to allow for more remote work. And so I think remote work is, is going to impact the, the lobbying profession. Uh, as much as it does, uh, you know, others, and that, you know, there's going to be, you know, a greater use of digital tools moving forward permanently, and not just, you know, during 2020 or 2021 while we're still navigating this new world. And and so because of that, uh, you know, lobbyists are going to have to be more holistic in the solutions that they offer, and you know, include like firms like mine in their proposals and in their partnerships, um, because you know. I've, if I've heard this once, I've heard it a million times from older lobbyists in the, uh, the you know, 55 plus crowd is, uh, you know, they, they think tools like this are interesting, but they may or may not understand their importance because they feel like they can still get the job done by going and shaking hands. And to their credit, in many cases they can because of those relationships. But, you know, as these people retire and as they adjust to this new world uh, that they're living in, uh, they're going to, to have to, to take a look at, uh, you know, doing things, you know, differently. And so I think that uh, a lot of organizations that have reached out to me now have never had digital advocacy programs because they're looking into it for the very first time because they see the writing on the wall. And I think that that's something that's, that's not going to change. Uh, and what is going to change, though, is the way we have to think about, you know, how uh, legislation gets impacted because, and, you know, even when the day comes again where you know, lobbyists can be, you know, in, in the Capitol and, uh, you know, can, you know, move in and out of offices, it's just not going to be as easy. You know, there's going to be restrictions of access, you know, and then there's just also going to be the psychological component that stays with society of a long time of, you know, do I really want to shake hands? Uh, you know, how close do I really want to be, you know, with somebody like vaccine or not? Uh, and so these issues will continue you know, to exist a year from now and five years from now. And, you know, so uh, innovations in the way that connections are made, uh, you know, through technology, innovations with the way that uh, voting takes place. I know that uh, a number of states uh, are including uh, remote uh, voting capabilities for legislators as things that are being debated. And that's really going to change as well, because if that happens, uh, then, you know, that scenario of being able to be in the Capitol and pop into somebody else's in and out of somebody's office may not even be a possibility five years from now, because if that option, you know, proceeds in certain states, you know, then lobbyists are going to have to adjust to a permanent situation where Zoom and phone calls and texts and digital tools like one-click politics and, you know, rap index and others are used, uh, you know, more broadly because they have no other choice, uh, you know, but to operate like in that uh, in that fashion. And and I certainly see a number of states adopting those measures. Uh, you know, I would not be surprised at all if in five years, like, you know, we have 
you know, five or 10, you know, early pilot states that have adopted either wholesale or partial remote voting measures for uh, the members of their General Assembly. And that, to me, you know, changes the face of how advocacy is done more than anything else I've talked about. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up remote voting, uh, you know, and I'll just, just summarize quick, quickly what's happened here in California recently, because I think we've had a real pivot moment where remote voting has gone from likely to inevitable just in the last few weeks. And the, the short story was when COVID first broke out in California, the legislature considered remote voting and strangely the senate concluded that it was constitutionally permissible and the assembly looking at the same laws and talking to the same lawyers decided that it was not constitutional by and large uh which was curious and and we actually have a lobbyist trade association in california we have a trade association for everything because because we're because we're so big and regular in california and, and this is sort of a little uh little notice fact but the lobbyist trade association wrote a letter to the legislature vehemently screaming about the idea of, of remote voting uh which is uh a little self-interested. Let's let's just be honest. Tell, tell my lobbying friends, I certainly uh, you know appreciate that everybody needs to look out for their own businesses. But uh, the idea that not having legislators in Sacramento for these hallway uh, meetings seemed to be more important, if you read this letter, than actually having continuity of government at a time of a genuine public health crisis. And we have a lot of reasons to do that in California, whether it be the fires that we're all experiencing now or a pandemic or an earthquake, the, the idea that the state wouldn't be able to function during something like this is really dangerous. And, and a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of legislators, as, as I'm sure you've seen, have been complaining that Governor Newsom has act to act uh, individually by fiat, they say, well, the, the legislature has been gone for huge chunks of the last few months without remote voting. So what choice did he have? And so I, I think it's very strange that Sacramento had not adopted remote voting in response to that constitutional dispute, I should say. Assemblyman Mullen, who's the Speaker Pro Tem, actually introduced a constitutional amendment that would allow it. Uh, so kind of, kind of calling the Assembly's bluff, saying, all right, if there's a true constitutional problem, then let's amend the Constitution, allow it. And strangely, that bill was quietly killed in the Rules Committee. So this was all sort of humming along um, with, with the a low level of friction until a few weeks ago. And then as I think virtually everyone saw at the end of session, Buffy, Buffy Wicks, who's an assemblywoman from Oakland, was forced by the speaker to come to the floor with her newborn infant in her arms to cast a critical vote on a housing issue, exposing both herself and the baby um, to you know, a place where there'd actually been several recorded cases over the last few weeks. And this picture went viral. Um, Hillary Clinton, whose campaign she ran in California, tweeted it out. And it's just a, a really hypocritical moment where you know, we, we've got a legislature that spends a lot of time lecturing businesses on being pro-working family, but literally in its own house forced a newborn mother to, to come to the floor with her mask on to cast a vote when clearly technologically that is fixable from a remote voting perspective. No one would argue that there's any technological problem in doing this. So that, that image has galvanized the debate on remote voting in California. And I think it's inevitable that we're gonna have it now and, and, we, and we should. And I think that, that all the trends that you've just been talking about, Chaz, with like people's you know, 
spending less less time in the capitals, more in their districts. You, you're going to see that at a much higher scale over the next few years in California. And I think that's going to encourage other states to go in the same direction as, as they think about what the best practices are here. So um, a, a great, great summary of where we've been with advocacy. I could keep you all day talking, talking about the future of this stuff. I, I think your, your products are so interesting. Where can people find out more about OneClick if they want to get a demo on, whether it's that video messaging or any of the other tools that you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, go to oneclick, uh, O-N-E-politics.com, uh, or you can just uh, Google us. Uh, you know, and then we're also on uh, uh, social media, uh, you know, as well. And uh, yeah, we're always happy to, uh, to talk with people and to uh, discuss uh, partnerships. Uh, so whether you are a lobbyist, uh, public affairs uh, firm or agency, or uh, you're a government relations professional, professional that works for a company or an association or nonprofit group. Uh, we'd love to talk to you and, uh, you know, see if there's uh, anything we can do to help. And uh, if we can't, uh, you know, we know a lot of other good, uh, good companies that uh, uh, do work uh, that complements, uh, you know, ours. So uh, uh, happy to, uh, to talk to folks in, in California or elsewhere. Great, Chaz. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. Just great to have you here. Thank you, Brian. Take care. Thanks for listening to Nation State of Play. Our producers are Hannah Miller and Jacqueline Artiaga. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. For more information, click through the link on your podcast app to our homepage.